Hello and welcome to the Writer's Cookbook Podcast, where each week we share with you a weekly slice of writing advice to help you boost your mindset and grow your creative skills. I'm joined by Sims torturer extraordinaire Ellie Betts. And she won't torture her Sims, but she loves to torture her fictional children. It's Christina Adams. Just to be clear, they're not actually children or alive. That they are is fictional. a relief. That is a relief. This week, we're talking about how to write emotions. We're going to delve into some deep, dark places, not just for our characters, but for ourselves. Right, because if you don't understand emotions or allow yourself to feel them, how can you write about them? Exactly. So just a heads up, this episode could get a tad emotional. Emotional is good. Shall we get started? Let's go. find the advice in the writer's cookbook podcast inspiring and want to support its creation and continuation head to writerscookbook.com forward slash support each episode takes about a day to produce when we factor in all the research planning recording editing and transcribing so even a small amount helps towards this commitment and also to helping us help you more with your writing anyone who does donate will get a shout out on our youtube channel every week and also on our social media. Speaking of which, I'd like to say a really big thanks to Mary Beth for all her support. She's contributed to some really great discussions and even given me an idea for my next series. And Cathy Kelly, who's always got interesting questions to ask and is loving our character creation crash course. And Jeff White, who spread the word about the podcast with his network and after attending our character arcs workshop, has got some new ideas for his books. And he wants to rewatch Brendan Fraser's version of The Mummy. Because now you've reminded everyone of how awesome, yet so simple it is. Isn't that what great writing's about? Oh, 100%. And Tech Dojo for his lovely review of the podcast. Yeah, he said that the Writer's Cookbook has been a fine friend to many writers over the years, generously sharing writing tips and craft advice. If this show is half as good as the content on the site, then you're in for a treat. What a great start to 2021. How nice is that? I know, I hope we're living up to that hype. It feels like the pressure's on now. Well, no, we got this, we got this. <laughs> Last but not least, we want to thank Bessie Clark for her support as well. If you'd like a shout out, head to writerscookbook.com forward slash support. You can donate as a one-off or as a subscription. It's completely up to you. We're considering doing a subscriber-only writing Q&A as well, so let us know if you like that idea as well. Now, on with the show. emotions why are emotions important in writing when you've got stronger emotions in writing it helps you to form a deeper emotional connection with your reader which in turn means they're more likely to keep reading oh yeah we want them to give a crap right what happens if we don't include emotions it can make your characters seem really bland and attached not in like a depressed or a psychopathic kind of way but in a kind of making your reader fall asleep because this person is really dull and basically talking in a monotone kind of way. No, we can't have that. So how can we add more emotions into our writing? 
Something that I think is worth remembering is to not be afraid of adverbs. The anti-adverb brigade is all about not using phrases like walking quickly. It's not there to stop you from using more vivid, emotive language. So instead of saying that she cried, you could say she sobbed. It gives you a much more vivid image of what the character is doing. And it creates a more emotive experience for the reader. Yeah, we become immune to certain words or phrases if they're overused, which bland words tend to be. They create less of a reaction than they used to because people have heard them so much. Nice is a really good example of this. Yeah. Because nobody really knows what nice means anymore. It could mean things are okay. It could mean things are cool. It could mean someone is a good person. <laughs> but I think most people these days interpret it to mean just a very blah kind of person. It used to be a compliment to call people nice, but now it means that you have the personality of a beige wall. Yeah, instead of saying someone is a nice person, you could show how they helped your main character with a particular problem that they had. Or even better, show them helping your main character with that problem. This then adds much more depth to their relationship and gets the reader more involved in that relationship. So they're going to be more invested in what happens between them, regardless of whether or not it's good or bad. Ah, I like that idea. So they aren't just generically nice. They did a nice thing for reasons that will make up more of their personality. And that way, the audience comes to their own conclusion that they're nice because they have those examples to back it up, even if it's subconscious. Yeah, specificity makes a really big difference. Like, a pet hate of mine is when people say that a character is in pain. There are so many words out there to describe pain that saying someone is in pain doesn't actually mean anything. We know it's negative, but that's it. Particularly in the modern world, when you've got people with mental health issues and physical health issues or chronic health issues, the types of pain they experience will be very different depending on what those conditions are. And if you're trying to portray them accurately, which as a writer you should, you need to be specific in how you talk about it. So regardless of whether you're dealing with mental or physical pain, there is a sliding scale of the types of pain people can experience, there is not a one-size-fits-all kind of description for that. And it's very subjective, too, and how people experience pain, depending on their previous experiences. So you want to describe it in more depth so the reader doesn't just picture it, they feel it, too, right? Precisely. One of the ways I describe my fibromyalgia pain is to say that it feels like poison is coursing through my veins. And I hope that's a vivid enough image for people who don't know what fibromyalgia is to know what it feels like. That is a very vivid image and a very terrifying image actually that you have to deal with that on a regular basis. I cannot imagine having to live with that but if I were to read that, if I were to read that the character feels like poison is coursing through their veins, I would have some idea of what they're going through. Yeah, exactly. Um, another example that I use is that my legs can feel so heavy, it's like they're made of lead and it takes all of my energy just to move them and put one foot in front of the other. Again, though, that's a really vivid image. And even if you've never had that exact experience, I can empathize with that. I can imagine what that might feel like. It's easier then for, like you say, readers to imagine that as well. So even when it comes to describing emotional pain, 
just saying emotional pain is both very boring and is not going to create a vivid image in the reader's head. But if we can make them feel what the character is feeling, we need to go into much more depth to do that. Yeah, two of my favourite authors who do this are Denise Grover-Swank and Rochelle Mead. They really, really get inside their characters' heads and because of that, you're really with them for this whole journey. I'm in Denise Grover-Swank's reader fan group on Facebook and there's so many people who are so emotionally invested in their characters and it is amazing to see like they're sharing memes that remind them of the characters and they're talking about how much they can't wait for the next book and how they're really rooting for Rose even though all these horrible things have happened to her but they're also partially rooting for Rose because these things have happened to her and so Denise had to be utterly evil to Rose and explain it in a very specific way for readers to have such a powerful reaction. You know, you you feel happy when their characters are happy. You're crying when those characters are crying. You're laughing when they're laughing. You're flirting when they're flirting. And all of this really adds up to enhance that emotional connection between character and reader. I guess it's not just about using vivid language, although obviously we've established that's very important. It's also about the depths you go into when describing these things. You're writing about a character's breakup. You want to be talking about the emotional pain that that character is going through in terms of both physical manifestations of it and what they're doing, but also how they feel. The questions that are going through their head because they're asking themselves if they've done something wrong, wondering how they're going to live their life without that person, wondering what the future is going to look like without this person. Or maybe something much more immediate, like maybe they wanted to throw their lamp at the person's head, for instance. We've all been there. <laughs> you want to really get down to the nuts and bolts of what they're feeling, which is something that a lot of writers, particularly newbie ones, who then spend a fortune on editing because their characters lack depth, don't do. Why do you think that is? Quite often it's because these people haven't dealt with their own emotional pain. So they don't know what it feels like for their characters. If you haven't dealt with your own emotional issues, then you'll find writing emotional scenes, particularly really draining ones where someone is angry or upset and you really, really want to get that through to your reader, you're going to struggle to write them because you don't actually know what they feel like when you allow yourself to sit in that emotion. I'm not necessarily talking about festering in it until it destroys you but kind of accepting and going, okay, I feel this way at the moment. Why do I feel this way? How can I articulate this to other people? How can I move on from this? That kind of sitting in it. The kind of self-awareness that you need. That's so important. And that's the angle we're pushing today, isn't it? Is that if you can't deal with your own emotions, how do you expect to be able to write them well for your characters? So what is the solution? Writing. I thought you might say that. <laughs> but as we said, specificity is key. What kind of writing? So there's a technique that I adore and it's called expressive writing. And this allows you to get out all of those pent up issues that you have and may not even realise are actually there. Yes, I think you have mentioned expressive writing once or twice. For anyone listening who doesn't know then, what is expressive writing? So it's where you word vomit onto the page about how you feel about something. Some people might see this as kind of like diary writing, but it's a little bit more in depth than that. Rather than writing about what's happening now, 
you write about a specific person or event in your life that's caused you some sort of pain or trauma. It could be that that person bullied you when you were at school and because of that you can't look in the mirror without hating what you see. With expressive writing you write all the deepest, darkest, most horrible things you think about that person and why they're a shithead onto the page. You finally put a voice to all those really mean, evil, cruel things that you've told yourself you're not allowed to think or feel and that you've bottled up for 5, 10, 20, 50 years and that you don't realize you're still holding on to. Because if you haven't allowed yourself to process them properly yourself, it's going to be much harder to actually get them on the page, right? Yeah. This is a very interesting concept and I know that it's helped you a lot. What would you say to someone who's listening to this and thinking, I don't have any emotional issues to deal with? I'd say they need to dig deeper. We all carry more than we think we do, but because we either suppress it or maybe we block it out, we tend to forget it or don't notice it's there. It's kind of like when you wear glasses for ages, you forget that you're wearing them, but then when you stop wearing them, you notice. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Or like me you'll walk into doorways when you don't wear them and still try and push them up up your nose even though you're not wearing them. I totally do that as well, minus the walking into doors part. Where do these issues come from then? Life. We bottle it up because maybe it was our sister that bullied us and we feel guilty saying that she's a selfish cow who's better off over the other side of the world because society tells us she's our sister and we're supposed to love her till infinity just because she's a blood relative. And so we suppress those emotions because we're told that it's unacceptable to feel them, but then they build up and they build up and maybe she does more and more things that make you resent her. And because you can't express that, it causes a lot of issues in terms of expressing your anger in other ways, or maybe in terms of expressing your hurt. And it can manifest in a lot of different ways as well. That sounds incredibly painful physically uh, mentally I mean but you're right I mean we force ourselves to feel certain ways sometimes and not process those emotions properly so I, I totally get that what else would you say about this well we may not feel entitled to be hurt by something when there's so much else going on in the world particularly now or we may feel like other people are going through so-called more or worse pain but it's perspective there's no It's not a competition, is it? There's no reason to make it a competition. Yeah, exactly. It's about accepting your own experience and knowing, like you say, it's not a competition. It's not right or wrong. It is how you feel. You can't change that if you're constantly running away from it. It's really scary to unleash all of this, particularly if you've been bottling up something very painful or you've been bottling up for a long time. But it's not about fixing problems. It's about acknowledging our emotions interesting why would you say it's about acknowledging and not necessarily fixing because not everything can be fixed you know and that's why we tend to bottle up things that can't be fixed or we think can't be fixed and that's what leads to all these pent-up emotions and all sorts of health issues as well but tools like expressive writing when you are totally honest not honest we're using air quotes a lot in this episode (laughs) i love (laughs) good air quotes I know, they feel very appropriate this episode. But the, that real honesty where you tap into those deep, deep places in your heart and your soul that you are afraid to go to can free you from a lot of depression, anxiety, and even chronic physical pain. That's 
quite impressive for what sounds like a very simple exercise. I know, right? Without going into too much detail about how it affects chronic pain, because this isn't, you know, a pain podcast or a science podcast or anything, I will say that physical and emotional pain are processed in the same part of the brain, which means if you try to suppress one, it often, or you don't deal with one properly, it often triggers the other. Of course, like people with depression or stress or anxiety often get random aches and pains in their joints and they can't work out why. Which becomes a vicious circle because you get more anxious or stressed about the fact that you've got this pain and you don't know what's causing it. So you catastrophize and think like maybe you've got a brain tumor or you're going to need your leg amputated or something. And then you end up in more emotional pain and in more physical pain because you're obsessing over the pain and it almost becomes addictive. Yeah, when in actual fact, your mind is just trying to warn you to either slow down or put the brakes on in the only way that it knows how to tell you which is by manifesting in a physical way. Well, I'm by no means an expert in this. The curable treatment program that I've been working through to deal with my fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome is based on this concept. And we're using its tools, which include expressive writing and kind of other stuff to help reprogram your brain. I've gone from barely being able to get out of bed to being able to walk familiar again. I've come off quite nasty pain medication as well. And I'm infinitely better physically and emotionally than I was, you know, a year, 15 months ago when I thought my life was very much over. You can really see that, though. And I know not you don't share it with everybody, but from my point of view, I, I can really see the difference it's made to you. And I know how hard it's been. It's not an easy thing to do to process all of that and get to this point. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, and it is really scary, but it doesn't mean that it's not something that doesn't reap huge benefits you know I speak to a lot of people and they tell me they don't have emotional issues and then they do one or two expressive writing exercises whether that's a dear x letter or they write about how a particular life event made them feel or how they feel about even just the state of the world at the moment which let's face it is fucking scary and they turn to me at the end and go oh my god I had no idea I was carrying all of this around. We suppress a lot of it because we don't know how to deal with it. And we don't tap into our subconscious enough, I don't think. Yeah, a lot of people lack the self-awareness to even approach these tests, I think. Or refuse to have the self-awareness because it's difficult. Would you say that expressive writing is the best way to tap into our subconscious? It certainly is for me, and I've heard a lot of success stories from people who have done it on a regular basis and overcome significant physical and mental health issues. And I think the really best bit about expressive writing is that because you destroy it at the end, you don't save it for posterity or anything. It's really liberating because no one's ever going to know what you said. Now write it all down and then set it on fire. Yeah, if it's on paper, but make sure you set it on fire somewhere safe. I tend to type because it's faster for me, but hitting the close button at the end is still very satisfying because it's just, it's symbolic of, okay, I've expressed these things, but now I'm moving on. That's so good. A lot of our listeners might be familiar with free writing for their stories. Would you say expressive writing is like free writing on steroids, perhaps? Yeah, but it's much more self-centered. It gives you that chance to look inwards and be really honest with yourself. And I'll be honest with you, the best writers I've seen when it comes to emotion 
tend to be the ones who are more self-aware. I'm assuming because when you're self-aware, you've dealt with these issues. At least partially, yeah. You may not have dealt with all of them, but you will certainly know what these emotions feel like, which means you can express them in much more depth. And more importantly, you've come out the other side or you're willing to find to the other side from these kind of exercises, which shows you're not afraid to face these emotions and go to those kind of dark places in your mind. That sounds intimidating though. It is, it is. But we all have something that happened in our lives that we're not willing to confront. It could be one big event or several small ones that add up. And it's often a lot harder when it's small ones that add up because you don't necessarily notice that they're adding up to work against you. This was the issue I had. And it can take a lot longer to work through what's causing your depression or anxiety or chronic pain or all of these things and more because you can't pinpoint one particular thing that triggered it. And so you've got a lot of small boxes to unpack rather than one big box. Makes sense. I like that that metaphor. But unpacking these things helps you to build the self-awareness, which means writing much more emotive characters that your reader will get far more attached to and come back for more. So compared to someone going through the motions who doesn't feel much. Yeah, the main thing that really puts me off a book is when a character is emotionally detached. And I don't mean that as a character trait. I mean like, say someone has a family member or a love interest killed off in one chapter. And then the next chapter, they've completely moved on and they're doing whatever and there's no signs of the grief whatsoever. It's completely unrealistic. And that's the level where most people can't suspend their disbelief anymore. They can handle your magical powers or your superheroes or your inaccurate um, space flight. I can't, but that's another story. But when it comes to emotions, that's what grounds every single drama, every single story. There's really no such thing as too much emotion as I'm concerned because they're really at the root of what makes your character more three-dimensional. What else can we do to add more emotion into our writing then? What about a little bit of healthy projection in the form of torturing our characters? Yeah, when I was writing What Happens in Paphos in 2019, I was very much still grieving for my nan who'd passed away about four or five months before I started writing it. And I wanted to get the book out quickly because sales were doing amazingly and I didn't want to lose the potential readership by waiting too long. So instead of thinking, I don't have a story, what am I supposed to do? I decided to channel what I was going through into my character. And the opening of the book is actually the main character talking at her nan's funeral, which is something that I also did. I chose to lean into the pain I was feeling and describe the setting and describe what Holly was going through. And when it came to the rest of the book and her dealing with her grief, I took a different stance to what a lot of people do. And I made her a really horrible person after building her up for like four books. It was beautifully done. Beautifully Thank you. Done. Everyone deals with grief in different ways. It's so hard to quantify that, I think. But if you've been through it or you're more open to it, I think you can. Why did you decide to do that, though? Why did you decide to build her up and then just make her horrible? A few reasons. One, because that was what grief did to me. Two, people don't seem to like angry female characters. And so I wanted to write one. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Three, a lot of people don't realise depression and anger are very closely related. 
And it was really important to me to lean into that anguish that she was going and going through and her inability to process it. You know, she took her emotional pain out on the people she loved because she didn't know how to cope with how she was feeling. It felt like her world was imploding and she was really panicking because she already had anxiety and she already had things going wrong before losing this person that was really important to her. But the more intense that anxiety and depression became, the more angry she got and the more stupid fights she picked with people for no reason whatsoever. Which I think is very realistic. I've seen that happen in real life when we don't know how to process things. People do very much lash out. Yep. Well, that was intense. Shall we lighten the mood a little bit and talk about some happy emotions? Yeah, so let's. It's worth keeping in mind, though, that the positive emotions mean more if someone has already been through the bad stuff. There's no good without evil, that kind of argument, you know? It means much more because you feel like they've earned the happy ending rather than it being handed to them on a silver platter because they look pretty or something. Exactly. No one likes that person. (laughs) You don't want your character to be someone like that unless you're using them as an example or they will get their comeuppance. That would be fun. (laughs) You've written that before, haven't you? (laughs) Once or twice. (laughs) but back to writing theory the more pain they go through the more the reader will feel like your character deserves their happily ever after regardless of whether you decide to give it to them or not and whether or not you do will depend on your genre and also the type of writer you are you shouldn't force a happy ending or positive arc because you feel obligated to readers can see right through that and they'll just put your book down there is a fine line between fulfilling reader expectations And writing crap just because they want it, isn't there? Sadly, yes. It's why a lot of TV shows like to marry off their characters in the last season to underdeveloped love interests or matchmake them into rushed relationships. But that's a rant for another time. Yeah, we shouldn't go down that path. I'm looking at you, Sex and the City. Charmed. Big Bang Theory? Gossip Girl. We could go on like this for a while, couldn't we? Unfortunately. So let's focus on writing emotions. One thing we often don't consider is that emotions are layered. Yes, like Shrek and his onion metaphor, right? Is that what you mean? Sort of, yeah, but he was kind of talking more about personality rather than emotions there. We tend to feel more than one emotion at once, but focus on the strongest emotion and assume that it's all we feel. Sometimes, though, the strongest emotion isn't necessarily the one causing the issues. I apologize if there was a noise and I hit my microphone. <laughs> like depression being the root cause, but it manifests as something like anger, like we said before, and lashing out. Exactly like that. Or maybe you've got someone who's very, very anxious and that manifests as them getting snippy because something isn't happening the way they want it to. And people might think that they're just a control freak instead of considering what is actually going on and causing that behavior that makes sense i'm with you so let's take an example of someone who appears to be lazy maybe they get up at midday they might even get up later than that and stay up until two o'clock in the morning talking to friends in australia or if you're in australia the uk or if you're in america wherever the other side of the world is to you but that person with a messed up sleeping pattern who isn't looking for a job when they're unemployed who isn't writing isn't necessarily doing it because they're lazy Sometimes this is a laziness thing, but it's also a very subtle sign of depression that most people don't pick up on. The lack of motivation, the feeling of hopelessness, the messed up sleeping pattern, not bothering to job hunt and avoiding things you actually care about. These are signs someone is detaching emotionally 
from the situation that they're in. But most people aren't willing to delve that deep into what another person is feeling and especially not into what they are feeling. It is a really scary thing to do, though. And depression will fight against you in so many ways that you can't even imagine until you're there, I think. I can understand why people might not be ready to confront those kind of emotions, whether it's for themselves or for someone else. Yeah, it's something I went through for a really long time. And I don't mention it much anymore because it's quite difficult to talk about. But I was lost in a very, very dark place a few years ago. And I do regret wasting that time in my life. And people can tell me you don't need to regret it and blah, blah, blah. But there will always be that question in my head of what could have happened if I had gotten help sooner, if I'd faced my demons sooner, how much further ahead would I be in my career if I'd taken that leap at that time? I understand that. It's really hard to shake the what ifs because there's so many different what ifs that pop into your mind, I think. Yeah, but I wasn't ready yet. I needed to have that moment, that event, that person, that whatever, to push me. Mm, It was like your very real, real life inciting incident, right? The turning point, the beginning of your story. Yeah, it's a key part of the hero's journey for a reason. The hero has to be pushed out of their comfort zone in order for the story to begin. Because great stories are about a significant period of change. They're not about someone sitting in their room having not showered for a week because they feel shit that's your starting point but they need to be pushed away from doing that for your story to progress and for them to grow by the end of the story and this is really effective regardless of genre because the same thing happens in real life the people who tend to stagnate and don't change tend to be the ones who have had the easiest life They have parents they can fall back on financially. They have a well-paid job. They weren't raised to be ambitious. They were raised to accept life as it is. They weren't bullied at school. They come from a happy family. All these things add up to give you a much more stable life when you grow up. But small things like being bullied, your parents arguing a lot, your parents arguing with you a lot, these add up to create all these little events and emotions that we don't deal with, that we don't process, that we bottle up, and that end up haunting us until we're ready to face them, if we ever face them. Of course, yeah, that's so interesting. But all of that stuff we can use to add depth to our characters once we've worked through it ourselves. So ultimately, to write any emotion, good or bad, or even bittersweet, we have to deal with those emotions ourselves first. Yeah, we have to deal with them, but also learn the right language to express them as well. Ah, and I know you're going to say reading can help with that. It can. Reading literary fiction has been shown by multiple studies to make people more empathetic because it's more internal. Yeah, if you can get inside your character's head more, there's no reason you can't have the same impact. Precisely. In a 2014 study, they found participants who read a novel about a Muslim-American woman were less likely to make assumptions about race than those who read the synopsis. Which shows the power of not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it. Precisely. Reading is probably going to help you with learning the language to explore your own emotions too. Because if you don't have the language to explore it, how can you face it? Exactly. Studies have shown men are more likely to lack the language to explore their emotions because they're not taught to express them. A few years ago, I remember watching a BBC Horizons show 
about this. And it showed gender differences between girls and boys as young as seven and how the boys were starting to get frustrated because they couldn't express their emotions. And the girls, obviously, they're seven. They're not the most emotionally aware, but they had a lot more language already to be able to talk about how they were feeling and what they were going through. And the gender differences between them were really starting to become ingrained. Crazy to think that that starts from the youngest seven, isn't it? And just from the adults that are around them. Yeah, it was weird because the boys, some of them would lash out just when asked to do something girly, like playing with dolls. But by the end of the experiment, when they'd kind of gotten rid of all of these gender stereotypes and they were encouraging the teachers and the parents and the students to use all this gender neutral language, it made a massive difference in terms of the way the children behaved. And a lot of the boys that were misbehaving became much better behaved because they could talk about how they were feeling. That is fascinating. I wish I could watch that. Yeah, same. It was so good. I'll keep an eye out for it if it comes back. But there's bound to be other research on the same topic because it's not a new concept, you know? Of course. It is sad, though, thinking about how all these pent-up emotions lead to mental health issues and chronic pain and, obviously, crappy characters. It is, but I think the tide is slowly turning as more scientific research comes out showing the benefits of dealing with those deep, dark emotions and also having the right language to express our emotions and the benefits of things like reading fiction that does get inside your character's heads. And I really also hope that sharing the journey I've been on will inspire some people as well because it's it's hard now for me to say how dark of a place I was in a few years ago and even last year you know it's not a case of you go through one long dark night of the soul it happens over and over throughout your life but every time you experience that it forces you to change again and you can decide if that results in you going through a positive arc or if you end up going through a negative arc or even a circular one it's entirely in your hands I'm sure it will I mean I find what you do very inspiring most thank you to be fair What would you say to someone who knows they need to confront issues but is afraid to do so? What are you more afraid of? Facing your demons or getting hit by a car tomorrow and having never even tried to achieve anything? Okay then, that's tough but, you know, vivid. And we said vivid is the key, right? (laughs) I get what you're saying though. People like to put off dealing with these things because they don't see them as important. But that question helps us to work out what really is more important to us. Exactly. It's the question that helped propel me to work on what happens in New York back in 2016. And now I'm motivated to work through my curable treatment program because I want to do more than I currently do. And I know it will help me to do that. Because the only person you should be competing with is past you. Amen to that. (laughs) And on that note, listeners, thank you for listening. If you do need any help with any of the issues discussed in today's episode, please, please get it. Talk to your GP, reach out to a counsellor, confide in your friends. Your health is important and we fully endorse getting that help. We do. And no matter how bleak it seems, there is always somewhere you can get help from. Even if it's a Facebook community of total strangers, even if it's a Twitter hashtag, There are plenty of good stories that have come out recently of people who have asked for help and have got it when they felt like there's nothing else left. So please don't feel like there is nothing else left because there is always something. There is always hope. You just have to cling to that very tiny thread and it will keep you going. 
Exactly. Depending on, well, regardless of what help you need, it is out there. I promise you it's out there. And sometimes you will find that you ask for help and you get kicked in the face. But that doesn't mean that when you ask for help again, someone else can't provide it. I once got told I didn't qualify for counselling because my anxiety didn't fit into their neat little box. It's like I have generalised anxiety disorder. I don't know how to explain to you. Breathing makes me anxious. Like, what do you want from me? You know, but then I spoke to another company and they were really helpful and I did some great CBT. So everyone will experience different things and get different things out of different programs. So if you would like to support the podcast and get a shout out in our next episode, don't forget to head to writerscookbook.com forward slash support. And we will see you next time. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you.